Your evangelism is directly proportionate to your value of a soul. Your evangelism is directly proportionate to your value of a soul. This morning, I have a great privilege to start the soul winning series. And before we get into how and how to have these conversations, I want to talk to us about the value of a soul. How many of you had to sit through that girly movie, The Titanic? Yeah, me too. Long time ago, I did. I only saw it once, that was enough. You kind of know the story before it happens. The ship sinks. Sorry, spoiler alert. On the Titanic, 11 millionaires went down with the Titanic. 11 millionaires died and went down on the Titanic. One millionaire got away. His name was Major A.H. Pushan. And when he got out of his room and got through the corridors when the ship was flooding, he got all the way to the top of the deck and he climbed over the, the rail of the boat and climbed into the life raft. So much for women, women and children first. But he gets into the life raft. And you know what his thought was in his mind? In his room that was now submerged underwater. There was a lockbox containing $300,000 in cash, silver, and gold, and commodities. Now back then in the 1900s, that is a lot of money. And you know that when he began to think about this money, he could hear the money mocking him. Mocking him. Although he had gathered this huge fortune, it was now sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark in the eighth chapter. The Gospel of Mark is the second book of the New Testament. We're going to be reading the words of Jesus. Starting in verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples. And he told them, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my name's sake and for the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeit his forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We have two options we can cut that passage out, or we can live it. We can ignore it, or we can believe it. We can skirt around it, or we can allow the text to change us. Because I dare not change the text. If there's one thing I want you to remember, God values souls. God values souls. 
The reason we win souls is because they're valuable. They're valuable to God. Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field and he sells all that he has with joy that by chance he might buy the field. Have you ever heard that before? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field and he sells everything that he has that he might buy the field. Now, reading a lot of, of sermons and, and, and preachers, and if you've grown up in church, you probably have heard this message in such a way that uh, as a Christians, we surrender all for Jesus and we lay everything aside that we might have Jesus. We always look at it from a, a, a surrendering and a, a getting our life right and, and laying aside every weight that so easily entangles us and, and getting Jesus the prize. When I was reading this passage, it was like I saw something I had never saw before. Have you ever seen a black and white photograph, an inversion, where the white is black and the black is white? Anybody ever seen that? When I was reading this passage, it was like, it was like the reality of the kingdom switched. It was no longer me surrendering everything that I might have Jesus it was that Jesus surrendered all the majesty and glory in heaven that he might purchase us, the bride. That means that Jesus considers your soul to be of great, great significance and value. God values souls. Why does he value souls? Why? Let's go into it. The prophets are summed up by Ezekiel. I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. The wisdom of the church and the New Testament, I think, shows the heart and God's value for souls. Paul tells Timothy in the fourth chapter that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, we see God's value for souls. The great subject of eternity is ever before us as we read the Bible. Now, I want to make something very clear. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. That's a very important distinction. What makes a soul Valuable. Well, what makes anything valuable? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what is the deal with this paper in our wallets? You ever wondered? Like, you'll trade paper for a, a nice pizza? You, you'll trade paper for a, a car or a truck? What makes things valuable? Let's go through the principles of value. The first principle of value is this. The creativity involved. Now let's apply that to us. You were made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis says that God made man and breathed into him and made him a living soul. Paul tells us that we are God's workmanship. Turn to your, uh, turn to your neighbor and say, you're a masterpiece. Some more than others, right? <laughs> Just joking. 
the creativity involved. God created your soul. It means it has incredible, eternal value. The, sex, the second is the source of value. Like if, we, if I was done, uh, rummaging around at a rummage sale and I found some old books, which is a very common thing for me, and behind these books, I found an old painting. And I looked at the painting and I picked it up and the painting fell out of its frame, but there was another painting behind the painting. You know, this happens in history. And at the bottom, it says in scribbled Picasso. I would immediately call John Van Pay and say, guess what? The church is paid off. <laughs> right? Because... The creator, the source, determines the value. Just like if you found the first edition of a Mark Twain book, you don't want to have to worry about money no more. You know, from Forrest Gump. And I said, good, one less thing. We have to understand that our souls come from God. He is the source of, our, of the value of our souls. The next point is the potentiality of a soul. It's a big word. What a soul could potentially be. On one, on one side, a soul could have incredible value in the sense that you, according to the scriptures, can be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus of Nazareth. Is there anything more valuable than that? That you could have the character of Jesus? That's the destiny of a true believer, of spirit-inspired believers to look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, and act like Jesus. Oh, the value of that. But the potentiality on the other side. That's a life of virtue. What is a life of vice? That you have the potential to utterly squander and ruin all known truths, to walk in rebellion and resistance to God, to live a life of, of habitual selfishness and having all works of the flesh manifested to their 10th degree. You see, the potentiality of a soul, that it could be this or it could be that, shows its value. The fourth principle is value is the durability of a soul. Now, when these knees stop working and these hips are broken and all of my teeth fall out and the rest of my hair falls out, there will be one thing that continues. It's like the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps going and going and going. And that is your soul. Your soul is the most durable part about you. It is the part that's literally thinking about the words that I am saying right now. This will continue forever. Your soul will last forever and ever and ever. Now to emphasize this point, I, I want to I bring out something that's very precious to my wife. It's a little white box. Some of you don't know what this is. It's leather. It's small. It has a little hinge on the back of it little metal hinge, and it opens and closes. Imagine. I remember this day I had it in my pocket. I gave this to my wife. She wasn't my wife then. Now imagine if my wife would have took this box and said, oh, look at this box. It's so... It's so wonderful. 
It's so special. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure this box is okay. I'm gonna put some, you know, some leather conditioner on the box and I'm gonna oil the hinge. And I'm gonna, I'm just gonna cherish this box and take care of it and protect it and make sure nothing ever happens to it. You know what, and, and, and just in case, I'm gonna get some insurance, some box insurance. I'm gonna go down to, to I'm gonna get some box insurance and make sure that this thing is always taken care of. It's a box, people. It's a box. Your body is the box. It's just a shell. It's just the tent of your soul. And yet how much time and attention in our society is given to the box? You know, we have gyms and exercises and kale smoothies and all of these things have their place and they have importance. But I wish we'd spend as much attention on the value of our soul. It's what's inside the box. It's what's inside, friends. The value of our soul. The rarity of our soul. There's only one of you. There will always be only one of you. One. The rarity that God made you unique in his image, that you in some small way are a reflection of his character and nature. And the final point of value is the desirability of your soul. Now hear me out, we have any realtors in the room? Now I might think my house is worth half a million dollars, but it isn't. I might think, oh, it's the greatest house, and it's got a nice roof, it's got a really nice garage, hot water, cold water. And I might think it's worth something, but it is what someone else is willing to pay for my house, which determines its value. Some of you are getting this. What was God willing to pay what price was heaven willing to give? Dear friends, the value of your soul is shown to us by Calvary. The cross of Christ shows us our value. What Jesus did and how he shed his blood and how he redeemed us, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the lamb. The blood of Jesus shows you our value. Now many of us, we're stuck in this, in this sin cycle because you know, the cross shows us our sin and it shows us our shame, but we have to also understand it shows us our value. It shows us the great potentiality of what a life surrendered could look like. God values souls. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What will man give in exchange for his soul? 
The thing is, is Jesus is talking about someone gaining the whole world and it's still not worth it to trade for your soul. And many of us, we haven't even gained anything and we're trading our soul. He's showing us the severity. He's trying to bring illustration and illumination to our minds that we will all go into eternity. He tells us this in Matthew. If your hand causes you to sin or if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it away from you. It is better for you to enter into life maim or lame rather than having two hands or two feet and entering into everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and to be cast into hell fire. Do you know why Jesus spoke this way? Do you know why Jesus was preaching hell? Because he valued souls. He understood eternity. He's from eternity. We have to understand the seriousness of sin and how it affects our soul. Proverbs tells us in the eighth chapter that he that sins against me wrongs his own soul. We have to understand that eternity awaits us all. But the problem is we're too earthbound. We look at the here and the now. We think of the moment. Paul says, what is your life? A vapor that appears for a little while. All the glory of man is but a flower in the field. That means all of man's blessings are nothing more than blue bonnets. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Eternity, eternity, eternity. God, keep me eternally conscious. We need to have God's value of souls. We need to understand that he values souls and we need to value our own soul. And some of you are like, I'm with you, preacher. How? So there I was. We were the second workers, the kid on the job site, and somebody had already started the project. And when we got there, they had already laid the foundation. They had already done the concrete and we were starting to do the framing. And they had framed one of the walls and, st- and they called us in to do the rest. And so we're starting to frame the walls. And then we got all the way around. We made the perimeter and we're trying to put the perimeter together and there was a great problem. The, the foundation wasn't square. And if you have any building experience, you know, you can't really pull a concrete slab into being square. You know, you ever heard the phrase squared away? Get that thing squared away in your life? Well, that's a, that's a construction term. That's a carpenter's term. 
The foundation needs to be square so that the, the, the siding can go on, that the walls will be plumb and straight, that you can put the rafters on and that everything will look right. But the foundation wasn't squared away, it was off. And so we're having to make all of these specialty cuts and we're having to use ratchet straps and doing everything we can to try to fix it so that it will look right. I never forgot that it showed me the importance of having a proper foundation, a squared away foundation. Have you ever examined your own Christian life on how you started your walk with Jesus? Have you ever taken your walk and, and made it the New Testament pattern and done a comparison? Let's look at the four corners of faith, the four foundational principles that we see in the New Testament. In Hebrews, these are called the elementary principles. There's four of them, ready? Repentance, belief, baptism in water, and receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. These are four foundational, like the four corners of the normal Christian birth. Repentance, let's define that. It's the first thing that Jesus ever said publicly. Repent and believe the gospel. That means turning from your sin and on to God. That means sur living, surrendering your old way and trusting him in his way. It means to go 180 degrees. If you're walking a life of selfishness and sin, you turn and you, you live a life of unselfishness and love towards God. That's what it means to repent. It means simply to come home, to return. What does it mean to believe? It means to put your absolute trust and faith and reliance in who he is and what he has done. Just like you are putting your absolute trust and reliance in that chair, it's kinda hard to sit in two chairs at one time but you're putting your absolute trust and faith in that chair to sustain you. And in the same mindset, you put your absolute faith and trust in Jesus of Nazareth and who he is and what he has done. That is what it means to repent. That is what it means to believe. Now, water baptism? Why are we talking about that? Because the New Testament talks about that. Jesus tells us in Mark 16 that those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. But we believe in what's called believer's baptism. That when you repent and you believe, the first thing you do is you express your faith, you express your repentance in water baptism. Now, this is the time where I got to step on some toes. So they made me wear these nice shoes. Aren't these nice? These were a gift. So I'm getting ready to step, okay? Take a deep breath. Now, I know some of us come from a background or a faith tradition that did some sprinkling. Let me explain this. In the New Testament, baptism was through immersion. And furthermore, in the New Testament, it's always believers who are baptized. It's people who come to the place of repentance and faith and then they're baptized as a symbol, as an expression of their repentance and faith. You know, baptism 
is in the Bible is a sim- symbolic of like marriage. Those who are baptized with Christ have espoused Christ, have married Christ. Can anybody get married for you? That doesn't work, does it? How would you like that? It's time for your marriage and someone else walks up there for you. I'm mom and dad, it's good, I got this. And in the same way, it's your baptism. It's your faith. Now we honor parents and their, and their hopes for us and their, and their dedications. Yes, we want our child to walk in the, in, the, in the fear of the Lord and in the gospel, but it is believer's baptism in the New Testament. And then finally, the last corner of getting our New Testament Christianity squared away is receiving the Spirit. This was very common in the New Testament. If you go from Pentecost in Acts chapter two, we have the believers, 120, gathered together in obedience to Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit. You continue, you have at Cornelius' house, right in the middle of Peter's sermon, he didn't even get to three points in an altar call, and the people were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues and began to magnify God, and Peter goes, can anybody forbid them water that they be baptized? For they received the Spirit the same way as we did. Then you continue, you, go have, you have the Samaritans, the, the people that the Jews had no associations with. When they, Philip was there, they led a, he led a revival in Samaria. They're, they're repenting, they're believing, and they're baptizing them in water, and the apostles left Jerusalem to come to Samaria to lay hands on the people, for they had yet to receive the Holy Spirit. But let's just take a moment. And let's just examine ourselves. Lord, am I squared away? Am I squared away? Is there an area of, of, of my faith that I haven't yielded? Have I fully repented of my sins? Have I put my absolute trust and reliance in him? Lord, I know I haven't been baptized but I want to be. God, would you fill me with your spirit? I want what those men and women had. Very simply, I think this is, the reason I'm talking to you about this this morning is this. Before we go on the offensive Before we go, when we win souls in our community, we must make sure that everything is squared away with us. Paul tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Afterwards, those who hear you will be saved. You see this? Paul says, examine yourself first. Then those who hear your message, they will be saved. He says, watch your life and your teachings closely first. Then those who hear you will be saved. I know there's many of us, you have people in your life, you have neighbors, friends, and family, and you want them to be saved. Watch your life closely. Examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. Lord, have I repented? Have I believed? Lord, I need to be baptized. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit.
very simply, to repent is to say I'm sorry and to come home and to turn. For those struggling with faith and belief, you can cry out like the man who cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You can be like Saul of Tarsus and listen to the wisdom of Ananias when Ananias told him, arise, be baptized, wash your sins away, call on the name of the Lord. And Saul became Paul. And for those seeking the baptism of the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians in the third chapter that the promise of the Spirit would be received by faith. You pray in faith. God, fill me with your Spirit. Now practically, we're going to make an appeal. We're going to call you. We're going to command you to come, to repent, to believe, and to be baptized for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift that the Father has promised.